Alex, my condolences. I don't know if you saw the big news over the weekend. I did. I, I watched a, a replay, yes, unfortunately. Uh, the U.S. women's team was knocked out uh, in a shock loss to Sweden of the Women's yes. World Cup uh, on I, penalty kicks. Pe- penalty kicks is the absolutely worst way to solve any problem. Like, I, I would not use that as a mechanism to figure out who owes five bucks when buying <laughs> each other lunch, right? As a way to decide the champions in an international sporting competition, it is a completely ridiculous, ridiculous standard. They, they really, my, my dad was a soccer football ref for years, and his idea was you do extra time and you start pulling people from the field, starting with the goalie. So you just go from 11 to 10 to nine to a side until somebody scores, uh, which I think would be way better and at least use the same skills as penalty kicks, which is just a, a total crapshoot. Yeah, this is a really this is a really hard loss. Uh, I feel feel sad for the listeners that weren't watching. Uh, and uh, if you are to believe the the right wing news cycle, uh, their wokeness is to blame. Um, That's right. So uh, back when just- you know female athletes used to be incredibly conservative. I remember, remember like in the 1990s. Yeah, uh, but then, you know, those hair chemicals from the hair dye just starts to seep in and uh, it's all over for you. Welcome to Moderated Content's weekly slightly random and not at all comprehensive news update from the world of trust and safety with myself, Evelyn Dueck, and Alex Stamos. Uh, we are headed straight to our ex-Twitter corner. Okay, so in uh, follow-up to the story we were talking about last week where uh, Twitter was uh, threatening to sue the Center for Countering Digital Hate in a ridiculous letter, it has uh, since followed through on that threat and sued uh, the CCDH for a bunch of things not the Lanham Act claim, which it mentioned in its letter, uh, the, the, the threat last week, because as we discussed, that was a ridiculous claim. So they've come through with a bunch of other claims around breach of contract, scraping of the website, and uh, CFAA violations. I don't really know what to say here, uh, except to say that this is you know just ridiculous that this supposedly free speech absolutist still still trying to uh, shut up this civil society organization that is you know expressing its views about how the digital public sphere should be managed, whether we agree with them or not, or whether we agree with them methodology. That is certainly something um, that they're allowed to do. If you read the lawsuit, uh, I don't have a lot to say about it, except that it's you know essentially a defamation claim dressed up as a bunch of other claims, uh, because all of the harm that they're alleging flows from the things that CCDH said about Twitter or X uh, as a result of the, the research that they did, uh, and saying you know that costs uh, Twitter things like advertising revenue and um, and, and things like that. And I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that um, CCDH's reports uh, that cost Twitter advertising revenue and not, for example, the face of the platform uh, tweeting out outrageous things and it personally reinstating uh, Kanye's account after him uh, tweeting swastikas. So, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to say about that. Yeah, it was a bad. I mean, substantively, is still a bad idea. Just you know, last week we had a great interview with real researchers uh, who demonstrate that if you look at data that's provided by platforms, you will come up with complicated, nuanced answers to questions like, "Do does social media ruin the world?" Right? <laughs> like uh, much more complicated, nuanced answers than you will read in most of the mainstream media is what you're going to hear people do research and. Cutting off folks and then suing them is ridiculous. Also, Elon Musk keeps on using the term free speech. I do not think it means what he thinks it means. Right? Like it is just, yeah. It's very I, nice. <laughs> well, so I, you just can't make any of the arguments he's made. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know how many times on this podcast we're going to talk about like, oh, Elon Musk was a hypocritical, but this one's just 
uh, kind of amazingly bad that like in any situation where somebody criticizes him or his people or his 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 company that he reaches for for these legal arguments and the other you know neither you or i or cfaa experts but you know our colleague rihanna is and she teaches uh, this fall she'll be teaching the hack lab class with me and she's going to do a whole lecture on cfaa and one thing she'll talk about is that over and over again over the last several of years uh first the district courts and then the appellate courts and even the supreme court have narrowed the use of the civil CFAA to very limited grounds. And so, you know, this feels like kind of a flashback of how CFAA used to be used uh, back in the day. Uh, I do not think it is compatible with the, the current understanding the courts have of whether or not scraping uh, can be prosecuted in this way. Yeah. So it'll be one to watch and it may unintentionally have these broader uh, impacts and effects on how the CFAA claims pan out uh, in these uh, in these cases and the impact that they may have on this kind of research and, and public speech around what's happening on platforms. So uh, so yes, if, if this actually eventuates, that's, uh, that's what we'll be watching. Speaking of lawsuits, this one's actually a pleasant surprise. So we talked a few weeks ago about uh, an Indian court order that held that uh, Twitter had not been compliant with federal government orders to remove content and accounts um, in India in the um especially around the farmers' protests and uh, complaints around the pandemic. And this was a Dorsey-era lawsuit that Twitter had brought challenging those government orders, and the court uh, had upheld the orders in a pretty draconian and extreme reading of, of what the law would allow. And we talked about it at the time that this was you know, the kind of thing that Twitter used to do, standing up to India uh, in the pre-Musk era, and would we see an appeal against this really quite broad and, and shocking ruling? Uh, and we have uh, this week. So Twitter has uh, appealed uh, the order, saying that it, you know, if this is up held, it could embolden New Delhi to block more content and broaden the scope for censorship. So that's a really pleasant surprise. My question is, does Musk know about this? Or is this one of those situations where, you know, because his uh, his attention span is not exactly, you know, the, the, the longest and he probably doesn't know what the, the you know, what's most of what's happening within his company. Um, maybe this is not a Musk thing, um, but we will have to wait and see how it pans out. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, uh, certainly, you know, recently the decision was made, but it's also the fact that uh, Musk has traveled to India, that there was more discussions with the Indian government about Tesla opening up the Indian market, in which uh, Tesla is currently locked out of, made me feel that this is probably not a decision by him, but maybe it is. Maybe he has decided that he's uh, a free speech absolutist uh, again, although it seems a little bit incompatible with also then threatening researchers in the United States uh, to, to try to appeal the equivalent kinds of threats from the government in India. But you know what? Uh, maybe he has a very nuanced uh, opinion of what free speech means. Right. Clearly, it's at least nuanced. It's, it's, it's galaxy brain. Our, our tiny little minds cannot uh, comprehend uh, this level of right. sophistication. We, um, we are seeing the, the three-dimensional projection of an 11-dimensional idea of free speech that like normal mortals like us, when it in impinges upon four-dimensional space-time uh, can only be seen as a tiny little hypocritical corner, uh, but we don't understand the, the vast galaxy that is he, he, he who contains multitudes. Yeah, P yes. pity my students that they have to learn uh, such a simplified understanding of, of, of free speech uh, for, from from me and, and not from these legends. The the true Stanford Law scandal right, uh, exactly. is that you, you do not understand 11-dimensional free speech. I think now we're going to need an 11-dimension free speech song, sound. It's going to have to be like a Star Trek uh, sound or something, but yes, uh, it is too bad that Stanford Law doesn't properly educate one else uh, on the, the true meaning of the First Amendment. Yeah, this is the the true Stanford free speech scandal, um, for sure. Okay, speaking of authoritarian governments, just moving right along and breezing past that, um, authoritarian <laughs> governments and demands to remove content. You have a, a story that you want to talk about. It's, a, I think, a really important story, and it's flying under the radar uh, out of Russia. So why don't you tell us what's going on? 
So as we've discussed before, you, of all the major Silicon Valley companies, the one that has avoided most of the interesting trust and safety slash content moderation scandals has been Apple because their business is generally not selling advertising or showing people uh, social media posts. Their business is selling multi-thousand dollar slabs of, of glass uh, in silicon uh, that you pay for. And uh, that turns out to be a really good business, uh, a, a better business uh, than selling ads in, in lots of cases. Um, but there are a couple of exceptions in which Apple is making a decision about what is platformed or not. And one of those uh, particular examples is their podcast app, which is much bigger than just the Apple podcast app. I think people don't understand in the podcast world, Apple hosting a podcast because of the way they provide open APIs to lots of folks, that then flows down into lots of other apps. So like the Overcast app, which is what I use, which I I totally recommend uh, by Marco. Yeah, Marco Arment uh, makes that app and they run the uh, Accidental Tech podcast, uh, which is about 400 times the size of the audience of this podcast. So uh, yeah, go go see ATP and use uh, code Alex and Evelyn That's right. uh, to go buy a t-shirt uh, from this huge podcast. But like they and and most most of the third-party popular podcast app, other than like Spotify and such, use the Apple index. Uh, and so whether Apple decides to have a podcast up or not is a huge, huge deal. And on August 5th, just a couple of nights ago, the very popular podcast, uh, What Happened by Medusa, which is one of the few independent Russian media orgs, so independent that they had to leave Russia, effectively. They operate from outside the borders of the Russian Federation, but they are uh, mostly Russian speakers and uh, mostly Russian people of Russian descent. Uh, Medusa's podcast got taken down off of Apple Podcasts, which uh, seemed to have been in response to a demand uh, by Raz Komandazor, uh, which is the censorship authority, basically the, the media authority of Russia to demand. So uh, Medusa publicly complained about this, and a couple days later it was put back up, or I think the next day it was put back up. So just a, another good indication that despite their attempts to stay out of the fray, Apple does get pulled into this. And, and another situation, perhaps equivalent to what we see at Twitter, which is that you have these large companies where you have lots of people independently making decisions, perhaps even regional decisions, and the decisions being made by people might be kind of politically involved or, or have some preferences here. And then when it gets to headquarters, it only does that because of a scandal. And so, uh, you know, it, it's not clear what Apple corporate uh, Cupertino's policy is here, um, but it should be another warning for Apple uh, about to be careful here. But the, the other thing that was surprising is in doing research for this is that Apple's response rate to Russian data request is actually incredibly high in the last period to be reported, which is the last half of 2021. Unfortunately, they've not updated their transparency report. It was 85% for device information, which I believe means iCloud backups. So that is an incredibly high response rate for requests from Russia. And so there, there might be a, a deeper underlying issue here uh, of Apple's uh, you know, repeating the kind of support of authoritarianism that we see in China of them repeating that in Russia. So I think this is something to keep an eye on. And of course, the tried and true uh, content moderation appeal mechanism uh, is not to just keep appealing within the app, but to uh, to you know try and get public attention to it. And that is how eventually, in in these circumstances, you know your 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 most uh, likely way of success of getting the content reinstated. Um, but it is it is true, and it's kind of remarkable how a lot of this stuff flies under the radar. We've talked about Apple's other uh, you know con- main area of content moderation is the App Store, and how lax a lot of the standards are there, and the and the lack of transparency that's happening both in podcasts and in the Apple App Store. Um, where they're just adopting the, the the YouTube approach of keeping their heads down, not explaining, um, and and generally that's uh, that's very effective. 
I think another good example of where you know public attention is is one of the key vectors of whether uh, of how platforms respond to content moderation um, controversies. Let's head to Cambodia. Listeners of this show might remember that around a month ago, the Meta Oversight Board recommended to Meta that the Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen be suspended from Meta's platforms for six months. Um, if they had heard a case about a specific video in which he was uh, threatening violence uh, against his political opponents, but because of the severity of the threat in that particular video and because of uh, the the Prime Minister's history of committing human rights violations and intimidating political opponents um, and his strategic use of social media specifically to amplify such threats, the board recommended to Meta that they suspend his account for for six months entirely. Now, the board's order to remove the particular video uh, was binding, but the recommendation to suspend the account as a whole was uh, was optional and all Meta has to do is to respond to that uh, recommendation. And they still haven't. It's still about a month ago now and they have three weeks left or so uh, to respond. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Hun Sen took all of this very well. Uh, he immediately threatened to leave Facebook and block it within the country. But in an extremely relatable move, his commitment to quitting social media didn't last all that long. And he's back and posting this week. And in an especially gutsy move, uh, he tested Meta's uh, uh, fortitude by reposting the same video, the same violence inciting video um, that got him uh, the, the ban recommendation from the oversight board, uh, which Meta did remove. But they still have left the account up and there's no sort of visible uh, you know, repercussions. For, for, for reposting it. And this is, you know, I just want to contrast, like this whole thing is playing out and basically no one, uh, I have seen barely any press coverage uh, of this. Shout out to Rest of World, uh, a, a tech publication that is specifically dedicated to, to uh, covering stories that are happening, you know, not in the West and for, for writing about this and trying to get Meta to comment, which they didn't. But, you know, contrast that, this story with all of the hullabaloo around, uh, you know, President Trump's account and what Meta's decision was going to be about that specific account and, and blah, 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 a circus that we participated in for sure. Um, I've seen barely any coverage of this. And I think it shows both the, the limits of the board's power in terms of like just not getting Meta to respond at all so far. Um, in the meantime, an election has happened or a quote unquote election has happened in the country. But it shows that without, you know, any sort of media attention and things like that, uh, these these platforms often just don't uh, don't respond to, to very real threats that are, that are happening. Yeah. And, and this is a big one because it, it's not just about Cambodia, although the impact on Cambodia is a big deal here. But it is once again a demonstration that the when you talk about free speech in an authoritarian state uh, where there's a very media savvy authoritarian on the top, then sometimes the decision to reduce the amount of speech actually increases speech overall in aggregate. And that is definitely true in this case where Hun Sen likes to use his Facebook account to attack anybody who criticizes him um, and to try to drive violence their way and to incite violence their way, which in the long run reduces the ability of normal people in Cambodia to have right. their voices heard. Um, and so I, I do think like this is a, I wish people were talking more about it because I think it is a an extreme, but therefore because an extreme an extremist, it's easier for us to see kind of the contours of the challenges here. It is an extreme example of what we've been learning over years, which is sometimes you have to reduce the spread of content from really big voices who have the ability to drive violence against people they disagree with, whether those those folks are in authoritarian states or sometimes in democratic states. Um, and that's you know one of the the great. Uh, ironies and challenges of kind of the age we're living to. It's just the reality. Um, and it's a reality that a number of people have denied uh, and are trying to weaponize, at least like in the US and European context. So yes, I, I do wish there's more discussion of it uh, because this this is actually one of the more important content moderation uh, fights that is happening in the world if you consider the 
history of Cambodia uh, for political violence uh, and, and the long history there of really terrible things happening when you have incitement uh, against political enemies or uh, racial and religious minorities. Right. And it just, you know, obviously raises the very clear contrast between the content moderation that platforms do in the West, where they get lots of scrutiny and lots of press attention, uh, and in other parts of the world um, where they can, you know, get away with things. So prove us wrong, Meta. We still have three weeks uh, to, to hear what their response is. Um, and maybe it's taking so long because they're going to uh, deliver a 16-dimensional understanding uh, of freedom of speech in their response, uh, which I look forward to reading. Okay, over to... Europe. So this week, TikTok announced a number of new measures that it is rolling out in the EU in order to comply with the Digital Services Act, which comes into effect for major platforms at the end of this month. As a reminder, a few weeks ago, uh, European Union Internal Market Commissioner Thierry Breton and his team uh, conducted one of these so-called stress tests uh, that, that they've been doing, uh, this roadshow that they've been doing at various platforms. They did one at TikTok's Dublin offices uh, and gave them a fail grade. And so as a result, I guess, TikTok has announced a bunch of things that it's uh, it's doing. So this is, I guess, the DSA gets results in in a way. But looking at what the measures are, I think is is, is interesting, and especially in light of the conversation that we had last week uh, with Josh Tucker and Jen Pan about the studies that they did on Meta. So one of the measures that TikTok is rolling out for. Uh, users in the EU will be the ability to turn off personalization. And this means that their for you and live feeds uh, will be considered, will just show popular videos from uh, the area and around the world um, rather than recommending content to them based on their interests. And their following and friends feed will continue to show uh, the people that they follow, but it will be in chronological order rather than based on uh, the things that they like. So, uh, first of all, I'm sure that lots of TikTok users will definitely use the for EU feed rather than the for you feed because if there's anything that we know about TikTok, it's that the algorithm is really at best an optional extra uh, to what makes yeah. it attractive to users. Yeah, um, yeah. If you if you didn't hear the sarcasm in, in Evelyn's <laughs> voice, I think both of us agree that you know one of the things that's really driven TikToks is that the quality of the algorithm. So one, the idea people are going to opt in if you're an active TikTok user, you're going to say, no, all of a sudden I want to, I don't even know what a chronological feed on TikTok looks like. So this will be fascinating to bounce off of a European VPN uh, to see how incredibly bad it is. Uh, it, it, it's probably going to be absolutely terrible. Like you pointed out last week, we talked about real empirical evidence that there are all kinds of challenges around turning off, uh, if you turn off programmatic feeds, a bunch of bad things actually happen. And a bunch of the good things that you expect don't actually materialize. And so you have to ask, what is the goal of the EU requiring this, right? Is the goal to help privacy? Well, you don't actually, TikTok doesn't know less about you because there's no personalization. There's this bizarre kind of privacy religious war that occurs from people where they think like, oh, well, if you turn off ads, my privacy is better. It's like the platform that is showing you the ads still knows everything about you, right? There's no actual increase in your privacy. It's just they're not using it to make money, which it becomes more of like a moral point of, oh, well, you shouldn't be able to use this data to personalize. You shouldn't use this data for ads. Okay. If you want to make a moral point, that's fine, but you're trying to make a substantive point of it actually changes the privacy of people and it does not, right? And this is another one where if they think turning off personalization is actually going to make TikTok better, they're just going to be wrong, right? And so it is unfortunate that the EU has kind of bought into these kind of the last round of cultural worship lists around social media, which mostly came from the left, to be honest. You know, this is all switched to being from the right. But a lot of kind of the post-2016 criticism uh, that was not empirical, that was not based upon evidence, that was kind of what you might call the New York Times consensus about the problems of social media and that have not stood up to over and over again real empirical scientific study that those have now been enshrined in the EU. So congratulations, Europe. Uh, you have laws that are not based upon anything real. Uh, so 
I guess it's right. at least they pass laws. Like here in the United States, we'll just do nothing uh, until the, the country goes bankrupt and uh, we can't pass bills and you know and everything falls apart. You know, the hottest summer ever. You know, so I guess like we should you know congratulate Europe on being able to actually pass laws. Um, but it would be great if it was based upon real evidence and real study and and not based upon the assumptions that you hear. Uh, either in the New York Times or from books written by certain Harvard professors who have no idea how the internet works. Yeah. So, I mean, the the conversation that we had last week with Jen Pan talking us through some of the findings about the um, the chronological feed and the counterintuitive things that, yes, okay, it did reduce people's time on platform, uh, but it didn't reduce polarization or, or political knowledge, uh, and it did increase the amount of political and untrustworthy content that they saw. Now, obviously, those are based on the very particular algorithms uh, on on Facebook and for those particular findings, um, and so they're not directly applicable to t- TikTok, but the, my main takeaway from that conversation was this is really complicated and there's all these sort of weird, unexpected uh, trade-offs that we really need to understand before we just like do these things that we think are going to be silver bullets and solve everything uh, without any empirical foundation exactly as you say. And so it really does sort of lend the idea that what's going on here is we have this uh, roadshow about the DSA rollout and, oh, this company passed the stress test, this company failed the stress test, and, oh, look at the results we got. We got them to introduce a chronological feed because we all know that that's going to fix everything. Uh, And it's all about sort of headlines rather than like where is going to be the empirical demonstrated evidence of how this piece of legislation is actually improving the speech ecosystem uh, in these countries, uh, which is, you know, which is a super interesting, super important, super, you know, difficult question. But that's not what we're focusing on. We're focusing on these these headlines and these blog posts of companies saying, yes, yes, we are doing what you tell us uh, to do. Yeah. I mean, the, the European idea is like, okay, social media is bad. So if we make social media worse, then things will be better, right? And so like right. you have these laws like this. Of like, so if we make it hard for them to make money and we make it so that people don't want to use the product, then somehow long-running issues in European society will suddenly be fixed. So, okay, good luck with that. Like the TikTok algorithm feed's gone, so that's it. No more. There'll never be a protest in France again. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. that was... Yeah, the Robespierre, uh, the real problem was that he had algorithmic feed. TikTok algorithm, exactly. The 4U feed. Uh, If there'd only been the 4EU feed uh, back then, uh, the world would be a very different place. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so speaking of tick the box content moderation compliance, let's segue to a story uh, in Fast Company this week about uh, Perspective API, which I thought was really interesting. And shout out to Yoel Roth, uh, who uh, uh, skeeted, I guess is the word, about this on Blue Sky uh, and. and, and, and made some good points about it that brought it to my attention. So Google, uh, who owns Jigsaw, uh, that, that created the Perspective API, said that demand for it has skyrocketed as large language model builders are turning to it as their solution for content moderation problems. So Perspective API is an open source uh, tool that people can use uh, to um, detect uh, primarily hate speech. Um, and uh, the uh, and apparently lots of these LLMs and uh, chatbots, et cetera, are, are turning to it to try and make their um, products less toxic. The problem, of course, is that Perspective is a very blunt tool with lots of well-documented weaknesses, including high false positives and uh, bias. It can be easily uh, fooled. There's uh, some pretty famous research showing that it's uh, more likely to label non-toxic more likely to label toxic as posts from uh, people uh, with disabilities or black users uh, or tweets from drag queens um, and uh, and have all of these uh, 
uh, biases built in. And it's just not clear that any of these companies that are picking up this product and using it are building in the safeguards that you'd need to correct for that. So it can be useful to have this automated tool doing this first run. And then if you have a whole bunch of human reviewers going through and correcting the errors, uh, maybe that maybe that'd be good. Um, but the the reporting in this, this article sort of sh- shows that there's real reasons to doubt uh, that anyone's building in those safeguards. Yeah. So it was very, this was a very odd article for me that people were actually using Perspective API in a production purpose, right? So I, I've always seen this, at, you know, Jigsaw is like a think tank inside of Google. They have great people. They do really interesting work. But I always saw this as like an experiment to put out. It was never really like a production quality service. And I think there's a couple problems with it. One, it's honestly not that great, right? Like you all talks about this a little bit, but it's got like ideas of toxicity and such, which are interesting in some ways, but not directly tied to specific trust and safety policies for specific platforms. I think there is a future for APIs and service providers to provide trust and safety as a scanning as a service. I think there's absolutely a a goal there, but the companies that are going to be successful here are going to have the ability to retrain the models based upon your specific rules for your platform and then to have a feedback loop of what you think is and is not violating, right? And I know of a number of other companies that are doing this kind of AI stuff who do that. You cannot do that with perspective API. Um, and so as a result, it will say like, oh, I think this is toxic or not. But the things that come out that are toxic or not is not great. And I know that because every year I teach this class, Trust and Safety Engineering, and our students have to come up with a trust and safety project, and they're supposed to use some kind of scanning system to do it. And these days now, they almost always build their own API. AI, They train their own models locally, or they use like large language models. But a couple of years ago, one of the only APIs that was available to them was Perspective, and they'd use it and they'd test it. And one of the things we made them do was come up with tests that they, they believe would create both false positives and false negatives, and they found a lot, right? And these are just students with, with you know, 10 weeks of experience. So uh, yes, I, I don't think Perspective should be used in a production context. If you're looking for somebody to help you out, there are smaller commercial companies who are focused on providing trust and safety scanning solutions who will customize it for what you want and will allow you to have kind of a back and forth and feedback into your API. That is a much better direction than using a general API like this that just has these weird things like toxicity and meanness and uh, other kinds of standards that don't directly apply to the trust and safety rules of, of any platform I know of. Right. And I guess it just becomes a place where, a situation where you feel like if content moderation fundamentally is brand protection, if you are using what is becoming somewhat of an industry standard, oh, it's what everyone's using, then that is like a, a, a you know, oh yes, we're doing the we're doing our due diligence in this situation where that's actually just not true in in reality. So yeah, it's a it's a tick the box compliance sort of measure potentially um, that's going to cause all of these problems and just sort of uh, magnify these these well known biases across uh, a bunch of services. All right, so to the legal corner. Thank you. Um, so this one's pretty scary, actually, uh, and didn't get a lot of coverage um, this this week. Uh, but we've talked before about Utah's age verification law that was requiring adult websites uh, to ha- to verify basically uh, the the age of their users and not serve content harmful to minors. Uh, we saw the Free Speech Coalition bring a First Amendment challenge to that law, um, and they have very strong precedent behind them. Um, we've seen these laws before, and they've been successfully challenged on First Amendment grounds as you know putting an undue burden on adult speech uh, and chilling a whole bunch of lawful speech without uh, any 
without being narrowly tailored to the ostensible harm here. And this challenge was dismissed this week, uh, a court in uh, court holding that the law, because the mechanism of enforcement of the law uh, outsources the enforcement to private parties who can bring a challenge, uh, can bring a, a suit against the uh, the the porn sites uh, rather than state officials, rather than the AG or whatever. There can't be a pre-enforcement challenge, and so they can't raise constitutional issues. So they have to wait basically until someone comes and sues them, and then in that suit uh, they can uh, raise First Amendment and constitutional arguments in their defense against the lawsuit. We have seen this mechanism of private enforcement used before. Uh, we've seen it in famously the Heartbeat Bill in Texas did exactly this to try and uh, pre- you know do a constitutional workaround to prevent uh, constitutional uh, challenges to that law. Um, but to my mind, this just has to be wrong as a matter of First Amendment law, where you know the First Amendment is so concerned about chilling effects uh, of laws. The whole point uh, of a lo- lot of First Amendment doctrine um, is to prevent uh, laws from chilling otherwise lawful speech. We have demonstrated chilling effects of these laws uh, in Utah. We see, for example, Pornhub has blocked Utah uh, from accessing its uh, its services. The Free Speech Coalition has appealed, so we will see what happens on appeal. Uh, but if this survives, it's a pretty scary loophole to First Amendment scrutiny, because what it means is that legislatures can pass laws that essentially chill speech because companies don't want to be facing uh, legal suits from private companies, uh, from private individuals, but they can't be challenged on First Amendment grounds uh, until a, a private individual brings that claim. So um, yeah, this one's, this one's really worrying, not just because of what it says about uh, the age verification in law in Utah, but what it says potentially about laws chilling speech much more generally. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I just want to double check that you think this is true under 11-dimensional First Amendment <laughs> Analysis. You know, we've and talked, not this just is embarrassing, and, Alex. I'm stuck in my third dimension. Um, I'm trying to get to to the fourth dimension uh, before teaching uh, in the in the in the winter. But uh, you know, I, I don't know what happens right. at tenth or eleventh dimensions on this one. We're, we're at we're at a critical moment. Have, have you seen Oppenheimer yet? I have not seen it. No. Oh, okay. Because you, you know, kind of a, a subcurrent <laughs> of you know, he goes to Europe to study what they called at the time the new physics, which was quantum mechanics, which made no sense to traditional physicists, including Einstein famously, you know, God does not play dice and spooky action at a distance. And so he had to go to Europe because nobody in America understood the new physics. And then he came back and established kind of the, the first theoretical physics uh, group doing that kind of work at Berkeley. And so uh, maybe so this is So you're saying I chance. should go to Europe? Is that is that what you're saying? Uh-huh. Well, I'm trying to figure out, I think you're going to need to go into Elon Musk's 11th dimension. I see. Uh, and then come back and establish the first 11-dimensional First Amendment school at the Stanford Law School. I think that would definitely cement its, its position in the top five uh, law schools in the country for, for decades to come. Top five. Ouch. <laughs> Look at you downranking us. <laughs> that one hurts. <laughs> um, uh, wow. We're going to have to talk. We're going to have to take that one offline. Uh, extremely upset. I'm censoring you uh, for making such outrageous comments about Alpha. Oh, my rights. School. My rights. <laughs> yeah, I've been censored. Are right. you going to sue me under the CFAA? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or maybe you should call Apple and have them take this podcast down. That's <laughs> another excellent option. Yeah, I'll find a Lanham Act claim. I don't know. I have some... <laughs> these are all my 11th dimension options to bring. Uh, just wait here, listeners, and, and and see what comes up by next week. And with that, uh, this has been your moderated content. Oh, oh, I think we still have to do a sports update. Oh, yes. Are you, will you let me? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. So it's very exciting, uh, of course, because Australia has now proceeded to the next round with a solid 2-0 victory against Denmark. Uh, so we're through to the quarterfinal and Sam Kerr and the famous calf we, we have been talking about for weeks now uh, got off the bench uh, for the last uh, 10 minutes or so in the game uh, and seemed to be doing fine. Uh, nothing dramatic happened, which is which is 
excellent. Uh, this is, you know, one of those situations where we didn't want anything interesting uh, or exciting to happen with that calf on the field. Uh, so it's looking, uh, it's looking good. I'm obviously sad uh, that the American team is out because uh, my dream final would have been a, a US-Australia um uh, showdown, but as it is, I hope uh, that as a as a second best, uh, the listeners of this episode will will root for the Matildas. That's right. Uh, so congratulations to Australia. I feel like we have to do the sports update because it seems from our reviews and our, our our feedback on social media that there are people who get all of their sporting news from this podcast. Right. Which I'm just going to say that is a terrible terrible idea. That's like getting all of your cybersecurity and content moderation news from ESPN. Right. They're like, I, I learned everything I know about like current cyber events from ESPN it is just as bad an idea to listen to us for sports. Uh, but yeah. that being said, I, I also have a sports update, a sad one. Right. So oh. congratulations to Matilda's, but a very sad one that actually uh, is going in the long run affect my goal of getting you to come to a U.S. college football game is last week. The Pacific 12 conference, the conference of champions completely fell apart. So there's this big conference realignment going around that American colleges traditionally play in these conferences that have some kind of physical proximity, right? So the famous uh-huh. being the SEC, the S and the E stand for Southeastern, right? Uh-huh. And they're all in the South. And we had this Pacific 12 conference. It's only been the 12 for a little bit. It was the Pac-10 for a long time, which comes from the Pacific Coast Conference, which is 100 years, 100 years of Cal, Stanford, UCLA, uh, USC, University of Washington, University of Oregon. And then we added Oregon State, Washington State, Arizona State, Arizona, and then it was Colorado uh, and Utah, right? Made it the 12. And slowly, starting with USC and UCLA, which I know it was USC that backstabbed everybody else, they left to go to the Big Ten, which is a Midwest conference, the closest school in the Big Ten at that point to USC and UCLA was Nebraska. <laughs> I'm not great at American geography, but I'm pretty sure that's quite far away. <laughs> right. That's not like, that's not the next state over. It's not the next, next state over. It's not the next, next, next state over. Right. Like, right. It's, 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 a, it's a distance. And so that started and the zipper effect started and it all came to a head last week with uh, University of Washington, uh, University of Oregon leaving and now Arizona State, Arizona Utah leaving, Colorado had already left. And so it is now, there are four schools left. It is Cal, Stanford, Washington State, Oregon State, which funny enough, I, I got to double check the math, but I think that it still is the conference only second to the Ivy League with the number of Nobel Prizes, right? So it's still pretty good, but that is not what you normally choose uh, your football conference on. It was based upon like your Nobel Prize winning physicist and, I mean, and speak e- for economist. Yourself. <laughs> yeah. Not... <laughs> and so now it's actually, it's actually, this is like really bad for West Coast college sports. One, because it's destroyed all these rivalries, but it really leaves Cal and Stanford in this real weird position because all these other schools are making tons of money from the TV networks and the PAC, four now is not going to have a deal. They had a a deal offer from Apple TV. It was going to be all streaming, which I thought was pretty cool. I certainly would have paid for that package, but apparently it was not enough money to keep the schools in and it's all falling apart. And so we're we're facing a weird future where nobody knows what's going to happen to Kelton Stanford. And it's a big deal because football and to a lesser extent basketball subsidizes all the other sports. So all of our students who we have who play sports, I guess you have less because law students generally aren't, but I have a bunch of students who are varsity athletes. If Stanford is forced into joining the big 10 or the big 12, they're going to be, you know, the women's volleyball team is going to have to make it to new to Rutgers in New Jersey for a Thursday night 
match, right? And then be back in class on Friday. Yeah. Like, and so that's just like a ridiculous future. Football teams play on weekends and they have the money to charter flights, but that's not going to happen for the smaller sports. It's definitely not going to happen for the women's sports, right? And so, and then it's possible Stanford won't be in a conference and then what's, how are they going to, how is Stanford going to pay for all these other sports? Um, now, at least Stanford has the money. Cal, my alma mater, does not have the money. And so this is actually like, it's it's really a sad outcome because you have two, like the the two best schools that play top tier football, right? Because the Ivy League, they're all kind of you know they're 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 technically Div One, but they're not like in the top tier of conferences. The two best schools in the country that play football are possibly not going to be able to do it anymore um, right. because they've been left out. So it's it's a really it's really kind of a crazy thing that's going on. It's a really sad day for college sports. Yeah, I mean, so so what's otherwise what happens? Like, do you just start at the semifinals? Like, if there's only four teams? Uh, <laughs> well, so that's that's actually one of the funny things. So there is a legal corner here, right? That, there's a bunch of people kind of forensically going through the contracts between the conferences and the NCAA, which is you know the overall overarching organization that organizes all these intercollegiate sports. That traditionally the champion of the pack. 12 as it used to be would have an automatic berth in the college playoffs so if they can keep that then these four teams are doing great because (laughs) all you have to do is like beat three other teams and all of a sudden you're in the playoffs against like undefeated auburn right so it's like that doesn't it seems that there might be if you if you fall below six or something so there's all these people who are looking at like great all they have to do is get back above six so you just find two ran- like San Diego State, Fresno State, or you add two Mountain West schools or something. So there is like a, a bunch of interesting things going on on the legal side of trying to figure out like how can they best game this. But in the long run, the real problem is, is that you know unless they join one of these bigger conferences, they're not going to get a deal with either the streamers or the traditional TV networks. This is also like to come back to the internet. Something that's actually relevant to this plat- to this podcast is this is a symptom of we're in this weird weird place where college football still makes a lot of money for what you know, people call linear TV, right? Like the cable channels, like Fox Sports, you know, Fox has multiple different channels uh, on the, you know, direct TV and such. Um, and the different ESPN, uh, I forget how many ESPNs there are, but there, there might be eight, ESPN eight, the Ocho. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but. Um, no, but uh, more than there are teams in this uh, in this conference is what I'm getting. Yes, right. <laughs> yes, exactly. There are definitely more ESPN channels than there are teams in the back right. four. Um, and they still make a lot of money, but everybody knows that's going to go away. So this is kind of the last gasp of the contracts with the big, with ESPN and Fox. And now everybody wonders like with Apple and I mean, Netflix doesn't do sports, but Amazon does like, what is the future going to be for college football? Are you going to have to buy a package for each different school? Like it's so it, it, a lot of this is caused actually by the internet and the disruption the internet's brought to cable packages and traditional uh, cable TV of the last gas of these schools trying to grab onto money before uh, the streaming wars kind of disrupt it in the same way it's disrupted Hollywood, which is what we're seeing with the strike. Right. Well, it's that kind of cliffhanger that's going to keep uh, our listeners to this podcast coming back uh, for more content uh, to see how this how this plays out. Right. Because <laughs> tune in here for all of your sports news. That's There's right. no need to go anywhere else <laughs> if you just want to hear about college football realignment and the women's national soccer team of Australia. Like, that's, I mean, what other sports do you care about? Yeah, right? you just have to listen to 30 or so minutes of uh, blah, blah, blah tech news uh, beforehand before getting to the good stuff. Uh, what Perfect. other better way to consume? 
resume your sports. And with that, uh, this has been your moderated content weekly update. This show is available in all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts for now and Spotify. Uh, show notes are available at law.stanford.edu forward slash moderated content. This episode wouldn't be possible without the research and editorial assistance of John Perino, policy analyst at the Stanford Internet Observatory, and it is produced by the wonderful Brian Pelletier. Special thanks also to Justin Fu and Rob Huffman. Talk to you next week.